тем, кто позволяет себе такие заявления в отношении России. Хочу напомнить, что наша страна также располагает различными средствами поражения, а по отдельным компонентам и более современными, чем у стран НАТО. И при угрозе территориальной целостности нашей страны для защиты России и нашего народа мы безусловно используем все имеющиеся в нашем распоряжении средства. Это не блеф. In the wake of in the wake of humiliating military setbacks in northeastern Ukraine, Vladimir Putin implicitly threatens the West with nuclear blackmail and calls up 300,000 reservists to replenish his depleted troops in the battlefield. Moscow, meanwhile, is holding sham referendums in four occupied provinces in eastern Ukraine with plans to annex them into Russia. Is this all a sign of desperation or is it a turning point in the war? Stick around because I've got just the guest to help unpack it all. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is the one and only Jeff Mankoff a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published books, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I should also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the Department of Defense. Welcome back to The Vertical, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. Good to have you, and I understand you're fresh uh, from uh, from from Unga in New York City, watching the UN General Assembly. Um, so, lot, lots going on. I imagine it was pretty interesting up there. So, here's my hot take on what we saw this week: um, Putin's speech, his his partial mobilization, and his threats of escalation. They need to be viewed in context. Um, this all came after Russian forces suffered a humiliating defeat in Kharkiv Oblast. It came after the discovery of still more evidence of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and even genocide in Izum and elsewhere. It came after Putin was publicly rebuked by Chinese President Xi Jinping and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. And it came as signs of domestic dissent in Russia are rising, something we'll discuss in the second half of the program. Um, but Putin's speech in this regard, I think, therefore, should be viewed as a sign of increasing desperation and a sign that Russia is losing the war. Jeff, what is your what is your top line takeover takeaway on this week's events? Yeah, so I think that's basically right. Um, the collapse of the Russian front around Kharkiv uh, was rapid. And uh, I think pretty demoralizing, uh, not only for the soldiers who fled, but for the political leadership back in Moscow. Um, and it sparked a recognition that probably should have been there from the beginning that this was a war that they could lose. Um, and there's been pressure on Putin uh, from his sort of hand tied behind the back. Um, and among other measures that uh, members of, of this group who include people from the military, the security services, uh, some of the people who had volunteered or quote unquote volunteered uh, to fight in the in the earlier war uh, in Ukraine, have been pushing for uh, Russia to unilaterally escalate its involvement, whether through striking uh, critical infrastructure, decision-making centers in Ukraine, uh, or and or uh, to carry out mobilization within Russia itself. 
uh, Putin had resisted those uh, calls for a long time, I think because of concern about the potential for uh, domestic instability. Um, but now in the wake of, of the collapse of the front at Kharkiv and the fact that the Ukrainians are continuing to, to press on Russian lines in Kherson and, and are making gains there, um, and that the West uh, has not uh, walked back from its provision of military assistance and has even increased it, um, Putin seems to have made the calculation that um, he faces a greater danger uh, from the angry uh, sort of imperialist right uh, that is dissatisfied with uh, the results of the war so far than he does from an angry population that probably is not going to be very happy about having their sons and brothers conscripted to go off to the meat grinders of eastern Ukraine. Yeah, he's basically he, he seems to have split the difference here. He didn't do a full mobilization. Um, so he seems to be kind of splitting the difference and he made pains in his speech to say, you know, this is only a partial mobilization. It's not a full mobilization. Nevertheless, it's a mobilization and it's only happened twice before, um, in, in, in Russian and Soviet history, to my knowledge, World War One and World War Two. Um, and we're going to talk about the domestic pressures, um, in, in the second half uh, on this, because I, I really think Putin's put himself in a very difficult position with, from this, but let's, let's kind of unpack each of the components. Um, from this week's news. I mean, first, the, the referenda in eastern Ukraine, which are being conducted in Luhansk Oblast, which Russia almost completely controls, Donetsk Oblast, which it only controls a portion of, Zaporizhia likewise, another oblast that Russia only controls a portion of, and Kherson, an oblast which Russia has complete, uh, almost complete control over. Um, these referenda, as we are recording, are taking place. They, they, they started on Friday. That's today that we're recording on Friday. Um, how do you see these, these, these referenda? I mean, partially, I see it as an attempt to kind of extend Russia's nuclear umbrella mm -hmm. over portions of Ukrainian territory and therefore it suggests that those are off limits. I just have a hard time seeing that working. I mean, we, there were nobody's treating Crimea that way. How do you see the referenda? I know the Ukrainians were really nervous about these things. It was one of the impetuses for the uh, for the offensive, actually. Uh, how, how, do, how do you view these referenda? Yeah, similarly. I mean, I, I think it's an attempt to um, extend the uh, nuclear umbrella, if you want to call it that, that Russia uh, claims over the defense of its own territory. Um, Putin uh, hinted as much, hinted at as much uh, in his speech the other day. Um, but there's a credibility problem here um, because nobody's going to recognize the results of these referenda. Um, I mean, who knows? Maybe even Belarus isn't going to recognize them, although Belarus has so little freedom of action these days that maybe it will, uh, in Crimea, which uh, Russia considers to be part of, of the Russian Federation already um, and has not uh, dramatically escalated its activities in response to, to those strikes. Um, and arguably Crimea would be more important to Russia than Zaporizhia or Kherson or, or anything else. Um, so in some ways, I think there's not they're going to have Russia's going to have a hard time uh, making those kind of threats uh, credible. Uh, of course, that's dangerous um, because if they're not bluffing, uh, nobody's going to be taking the threat seriously and, and are going to cross what Russia uh, thinks are, are red lines. So I, I, I do think it's really important here to have uh, communication uh, as hard as it is to, to do diplomacy under these circumstances. Um, and to, uh, you know, sort of understand uh, 
sort of how what kind of responses are available and, and what the potential response to them uh, would be. Yeah, no, and I'm 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 actually wondering if there, we're going to see additional sanctions in response mm -hmm. to these referenda. I mean, the West West does need to send a very very clear signal that we don't recognize this. I mean, the U.S. has put these restrictions on what Ukraine could hit with U.S. weapons, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it is pointedly uh, said you know that Crimea is not considered Russian territory. These this territory will not be considered Russian territory. I don't see this as actually having any um any 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 effect in the conduct of the war. Do, do you I I honestly just don't see that at this point. No, uh I don't. Uh for the reasons that you know we just were we're talking about mm. the fact that Ukraine has already struck uh in territory that russia claims as its own and more than that has actually struck on unambiguous russian territory like in belgorod yeah uh, suggests that you know these these red lines are not so red um or that russia doesn't have the capability to uh enforce what it claims to be a, a red line so it, whether it's a question of will or a question of capability um those lines have, have been crossed already and i imagine will continue being crossed regardless of, of these referenda right and the, the voting is going to continue in those in those four provinces over the weekend um i suppose we'll, we'll hear results um in the beginning of next week yeah go ahead yeah i was just going to say since you know we were talking about the domestic context too. I think that may be an element of these referenda as well, that obviously the war is not gone as uh, planned for the Russians. Uh, the retreat from Kharkiv was pretty humiliating. Call-ups, conscription, not gonna be very popular. Um, so what does Russia have to show uh, now, what, seven months into this conflict? Um, clearly in 2014, with the annexation of Crimea, there was a big upsurge in patriotic feeling. Uh, it provided a new sort of uh, legitimacy narrative for Putin. Um, I think there may be an element of trying to repeat that uh, by kind of changing the the story. Like, see, we we've accomplished something. We we've gained territory. Don't, you know, don't boss Nash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Zaporizhia Nasha. You know? <laughs> it's like. But but I just don't see that having this. I mean, it's clearly not going to have the same no. punch. Um, again, this is. I mean, this is not a small piece of territory. This is a territory roughly the size of Portugal. Yeah. Um, these four provinces combined are roughly the size of, of of Portugal. So this is not a a small a small piece of territory. But I just don't see that as satisfying the, the Putin's right. Um, and it's certainly not going to whip up any uh, any pa patriotic fervor, um, but it is going to be interesting to watch the propaganda around these the, these referenda. What about the threats of nuclear escalation? And he was pretty pretty explicit about that. It was it was predicated on a bunch of lies. Um, he said that the West is encouraging Ukraine to hit Russia. That West is giving Ukraine logistical support and weapons to hit Russian territory. Um, and that the West has threatened Russia with nuclear weapons. All of those things are absolute lies. Um, but nevertheless, this is what he predicated it on, where he said we will use all the weapons at our disposal, an implicit uh, threat to use nuclear weapons, and adding, this is not a bluff. Now, anybody knows that when somebody says this is not a bluff, it obviously it's, it probably is. What, what, what were your thoughts on the nuclear escalation? I mean, Putin made similar threats at, at the beginning of this conflict, right? Um, he, he more or less explicitly invoked nuclear weapons uh, in announcing the uh, the first phase of the invasion back in February um, in a similar kind of way, you know, a similar kind of, of rhetoric. Um, 
So again, I think this is a reminder and I think it's an attempt to incorporate these territories that Russia is seeking to annex within that umbrella. But beyond that, I don't see it as really going much further uh, down the road. Um, I know the military folks uh, are paying really close attention to things like force posture, whether, you know, the, the Russian military is taking any steps that might suggest that they're, you know, moving towards a, uh, a posture of, of actual nuclear use. Um, I certainly haven't seen anything in open sources that suggests that uh, anything like that is underway. So uh, again, I take this to be more of a kind of uh, warning uh, rather than, you know, an explicit uh, statement that uh, something bad is, is about to happen. I mean, I saw him doing two things here. For the domestic audience, I saw him, because before he made the nuclear threats, he had this long windup about all the things the West is allegedly doing mm -hmm. to Russia in Ukraine. Um, yeah, this long windup. And this again, I mean, it, it's it's really hard for Russians to swallow that Russia's losing a war to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they must be fighting a war with somebody other with than NATO. Ukraine. Yeah. They're fighting a war with NATO. Um, and this is and, and so he was domestically, I think he was trying to frame the conflict um, in 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 a way that in which it was a, a war with NATO. Um, mm -hmm. And then he was sending a message that the message to the West, though, I saw as an attempt to in, to influence the current debate that's going on in Western capitals. I mean, we all know that here in Washington and in other Western capitals, there's a lot of talk about fears of this conflict escalating and metastasizing. Right. Mm -hmm. And he seemed to be trying to influence that debate because there are those here in Washington that are do, do, are, are kind of pushing back on extensive military support to Ukraine. <laughs> um, they just had the debate in the Biden administration about the attackums. Yeah. Um, and there was a piece in The New York Times earlier this week um, where the, the administration has decided not at this time to send attackums because that would be escalate, potentially escalatory. The funny thing is we've seen this debate about the javelins. We've seen this debate about the about the HIMARS. Now we're seeing it about the attackums and also about tanks and fighter jets um, yeah. now. And I think this was an attempt to kind of kind of, to to bolster the arguments of those mm -hmm. in the U.S. administration and in other Western capitals that we should not we should not uh, give Ukraine more. We should not give them the attackums. We should not give them tanks. We should not give them uh, uh, fighter fighter jets. Do, do, do you see that? That's what I saw going on internet. The messaging that was going on internationally there mm -hmm. is that what you saw. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Um, you know, again, I don't think that the West is going to stop providing weapons to Ukraine. I don't think they're going to tell the Ukrainians, don't use these weapons to fire into occupied Kherson or Donetsk or wherever. Um, so the only sort of lever that, the only thing that Russia could be seeking realistically to gain from this kind of threat is precisely, as you said, to influence the debate about what kind of support is going to be provided. And of course, that's a debate that's happening not only in Washington, but it's happening in a lot of the European mm -hmm. capitals as well. Um, Berlin is, you know, perhaps the the one where most of this is focused, where there's you know, still this, yeah, still this ongoing debate about providing uh, leopard tanks. Um, and I think that you know, there is definitely more reticence in, in some of these European capitals about providing um, military assistance to Ukraine. Um, and that's 
contributes to the, the failure to provide some of these systems obviously limits Ukraine's capabilities, but it also feeds into a transatlantic uh, divide over this issue. I think it creates more tensions uh, within the alliance, and that's certainly something that I think Russia benefits from and, and is looking to uh, exacerbate. You know, you don't need to um, actually, no, let me just stop there. No, okay. I mean, we, we were both kind of, you know, involved in different Russia working groups here in, in, in Washington. Actually, I'll be in one right after recording this podcast. Um, we're hearing the rumblings here in town about, A, the debate that's going on in the administration between the National Security Council on one hand and state and defense on the other, with the National Security Council and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan urging more, seeming to urge more caution. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken and Secretary of Defense Austin are more, are, 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 I think, favor more robust assistance to Ukraine. So that's one thing we have going on. We have what's going on in other European capitals, the, the calls for the, the, the periodic calls out of France for a negotiated settlement, Germany's reluctance to provide uh, weapons. But then we have a we got a midterm election coming up here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, with each supplemental bill, the number in the House that is voted that have voted against it has gone up. Yep. And that's disturbing. Um, It's still nowhere near threatening uh, the supplemental uh, defense assistance uh, bills for for, for Ukraine, but it's 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 increasing and it's largely increasing on the far right of the Republican caucus. But I'm hearing rumblings and I don't know if you're hearing them as well, that there are some rumblings on the left of the Democratic Party and that perhaps there's going to be there's going to be some resistance coming from the left. Now, this going into midterm, this is not going to be the number one issue in midterm elections, obviously. But I mean, I'm sure Moscow is keeping an eye on this and attempting to kind of increase this resistance uh, in the U.S. as well as in other European capitals. So do do you see that happening as well? Yeah. And, you know, we used to use this term Ukraine fatigue. Right. Uh, after the annexation of, of Crimea, you know, how long was the West's attention going to be focused on this? Um, I think now there's less Ukraine fatigue seven months in than was the case in, in 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. um, in part because just the scale of, of what's going on, uh, the scale of the suffering and the scale of the threat that the Russian actions pose to, you know, broader peace and stability in Europe. But we are seven months in. Um, other things have happened in the world. Um, economies pretty much everywhere uh, are not in a great state. Uh, you know, the Federal Reserve had to raise interest rates again, uh, was it yesterday? Yes. Um, and they're talking about, uh, you know, they hope for a soft landing for the economy, but they're not sure that that's going to be there. So these are all things that people are, are focusing on at the expense of Ukraine. Um, and I think for Russia, the extent to which the Ukrainian problem looks insoluble uh, or looks dangerous uh, certainly helps uh, them. And I think to the extent that they can you know, foster a political climate in other countries where the focus isn't on Ukraine, but is on all of these other things, um, that certainly helps. Um, and that means you know, hoping for uh, the election of, of uh, representatives, senators, and you know parliamentarians in Europe, who are less inclined to uh, you know believe that this this kind of military and other support for Ukraine uh, is justified. And if yeah, you can do scaring voters, if you can do that by scaring voters out of their minds about the potential for this to to escalate into nuclear war, I think that's that's one way you do that. 
Yeah, and so far so good. I mean, the bipartisan consensus is holding up. I mean, the 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 the, the bill, uh, you know, make, declaring Russia a terrorist, a state sponsor of terrorism, is sponsored by Senator Graham, the Republican from South Carolina, yeah. and Senator Blumenthal, a, a a Democrat from my home state of Connecticut. Um, you were also, how did, how much weight did you give, or how much significance did you give to the comments that she and Modi made in Uzbekistan to Putin? I mean, this was. Interesting for me, China and India, two countries that are reluctant to join the sanctions for different reasons. No love lost between those two countries. They come right. to the same place for different reasons. Um, China is, is is supportive of Russia as long as this was a small victorious war, but China seems yep. to be getting nervous as this is dragging on. China's mm -hmm. also very nervous. I'm picking up rumblings in town that, that China is very, doesn't like Putin's nuclear posturing. <laughs> um, and that this makes them very, very nervous. They're, that that yeah. makes the Chinese very nervous. Um, I'm, I wonder how Putin's remarks went over in Beijing. But um, and then Modi, who's playing a different game. I mean, Modi is basically India historically in this is, has been very, very pragmatic. They had they, they they worked with the Russians throughout the Cold War, while at the same time maintaining good relations with the West. They're playing the same game now. India is looking at it very pragmatically. We we can't buy. You won't let us buy oil from the Iranians. You won't let us buy it from the Venezuelans. So we're going to buy it from the Russians, and that's that. Um, right. India also gets a lot of their weapons from Russia, um, although they're going to have to shift that as sanctions bite yeah. the Russian arms industry. But they they will not buy weapons from the United States because the United States sells weapons to Pakistan. Um, but but India now is expressing concern. How do you see this loss of support, uh, this apparent loss of support from from China and India? Is this significant? Yeah, I, I think it is, and you know. I, I agree that Modi and Xi each have their own reasons for, for taking the approach that they have, but there's a commonality here, which is that nobody wants to back a loser. And right. I think had the war, you know, had it been the short victorious war that, that Putin was hoping for, um, probably some of these concerns would have been uh, muted or, or not expressed at all. But the fact that it has dragged on to the extent that it has and that it's raised the temperature to the extent that it has is worrying for those leaders. I mean, they're both worried about the state of the global economy, about their own economies uh, in particular, about the price of energy. They're both big uh, energy importers yep. uh, who don't want to have to pay more for, for oil and gas, whether they get it from Russia or from anybody else. Um, and... You know, like it's this is a, a dangerous precedent, especially for China. Um, I think that having watched the fiasco that Russia stumbled into in the in Ukraine, um, certainly people in Beijing have got to be having some heartburn about what uh, military operations against Taiwan would look like. And you know, anything that encourages the U.S. to uh, step up its preparedness, step up its uh, willingness to uh, support countries like Ukraine or Taiwan who are facing this kind of threat um, has to, to be worrying there as well. I mean, the U.S. is learning a lot of lessons from this. I think Taiwan is probably learning a lot of lessons from this. Um, and that's that certainly doesn't benefit the Chinese side either. But I think really the most important thing is, you know, this war has dragged on too long. The impact on energy and food and other prices uh, is going to have a direct impact in, in China, India, and, and elsewhere. And Russia's value to both of these countries as a partner uh, has diminished significantly yep. uh, as a result. Now, do you view, because after all of this, after she and Modi very publicly rebuked Putin, 
Um, Yeah, more publicly than she, but then even Putin referred to Xi's concerns in his own speech in Uzbekistan. But then Putin comes out with this bellicose escalatory speech where he basically threatens nuclear escalation and calls up a mobilization, escalates the war. Was he thumbing his nose at Xi and Modi? Because that's, I mean, I couldn't read it any other way than that. And can he afford to do that? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure he didn't just yesterday take the decision to mobilize. I mean, admittedly, right. it looked kind of slapdash, but I'm sure it wasn't taken you know, quite in such a slapdash fashion. So presumably, Putin knows this is coming when he goes to Samarkand. Right. Um, I also think, though, that Russia still thinks that they can win a relatively short war. Um, in some I think fashion. they're delusional about that, but well, <laughs> right. And we, you know, we can talk about the military effectiveness of conscripts and and the Russian conscription. That's where system. I wanted to go next. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you know, I, I think the hope is that you can somehow just try harder and and deliver a knockout blow so that this all you know ends. And I think the the conscription, you know, the threats of, of nuclear use, everything else, you know, Russia's still looking for. Uh, a way to end this before things go completely pear-shaped. Yeah, and this this mobilization, because I did want to dive into the effectiveness of that, because I, I have I have some serious questions about that, and I've, I've talked to different military experts about the effect of this. But before the mobilization, the Duma had passed a series of laws um, that effectively criminalized surrendering and retreating. Um, in the war. I mean, they, 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 they said they were criminalizing desertion, but desertion is already a crime. Um, and they appear to have, have, have criminalized uh, surrendering and retreating. Um, so there's, there are serious fears about the, the level of morale on the front and the cohesion of the armed forces. But the mobilization itself, and I, my understanding is that this is going to take months. We're talking about 300,000 uh, troops that they're talking, trying to mobilize. It seems like we're talking about more than that. So we're saying... Putin used the number 300,000, but it looks like on the basis of the lists that have been distributed, they're actually aiming for three times that or, or more. But that's going to take a long time. That's going to take months to get those soldiers called up, inducted, trained, and get, get getting them into the field. And man, manpower is not, also, not the only problem. I mean, Russia's yeah. manpower is depleted in the field. They went in with about 150,000 troops. Mm-hmm. They've lost to either combat deaths or, or, or injuries about 80,000, according to the mm-hmm. Pentagon's estimates, um, mm-hmm. so more than half. Um, but they're also their equipment is is is, is yeah. depleted. Um, their 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 weapons or stores are depleted. Um, yeah. Their logistics are a mess. How do you yeah. see the effectiveness militarily of this mobilization? Not great. Um, again, and I think there's a recognition in Russia that they need to find something that looks like victory sooner than later, because the longer this goes on, the more that these weaknesses are going to make themselves manifest. And that includes on the economic side, where you know the, the economic indicators for Russia have really started uh, declining in the last couple of months after you know the first few months of the war, they seem to be holding relatively steady. Yeah. Um, as far as the effectiveness of the mobilization goes, I mean, I think you can divide that into a couple of different uh, baskets. You know, one, how effective is Russia actually going to be at meeting these quotas, at getting people called up? Um, you know, they seem to have resorted to some fairly draconian uh, tactics in order to do that. Yeah. You know, just like plucking people off the street. Uh, you know, this kind of reminds of you know stories of uh, the Tsar's army back in right. you know, the 1900s. Um, 
you know, telling uh, people who migrated to Russia from post-Soviet countries and acquired Russian citizenship that they're going to lose it if they don't uh, come up for conscription. Uh, you know, even pulling people like out of uh, state companies. Uh, yeah. You know, they're casting a very, very wide net here, um, which again to me suggests that they're going to have trouble convincing people to go uh, on a more or less voluntary basis. Um, so they may be able to get the numbers, uh, through these, you know, very draconian measures, but what's that going to do to the combat effectiveness of the people they're calling up? Now, you know, probably they're not going to be asking these people to engage in complex combined armed, uh, maneuvers. You know, they're probably going to give them a gun and stick them in a foxhole somewhere. They're going to be cannon fodder to, to yeah. prevent any further Ukrainian advances. Yeah. Is my, and, is my and that to get to the, the second piece of, of combat effectiveness it depends on what they're called on to do. If they're giving them a rifle and sticking them in a foxhole and telling them to point it that way and shoot at anything that comes over, I mean, yeah, that can be reasonably effective. You know, you don't need to have super well-trained troops to hold the line. Um, but, you know, Ukraine also has artillery. It has, you know, the rockets, various kinds of things that we've given them. And they're going to exact a huge toll on these yep. forces. And that you've got a force that already is going to have questionable morale doesn't look like a recipe for success. Yeah, no. And I also saw today, I mean, Putin has actually just announced a series of exemptions um, mm -hmm. from the draft. Um, men with certain white collar jobs in banking, IT and telecom will not be called up to join the war effort. Um, that looks like domestic. He's trying to keep the war out of the big city, keep, keep the fear out of the big cities is my is my is my take on that. The other thing is, how long is it going to take to get these troops to the front? And does that provide Ukraine with a window of opportunity in the interim? I mean, I think we're probably going to see another Ukrainian offensive. We're saying, you know, it's going to take three, four months to get these troops trained up and, and, mm -hmm. and at the front and that's what it that's what i'm hearing from military experts that doesn't that give ukraine a serious window of opportunity right now yeah and i mean the weather is the other factor here because if it's we're talking three to four months from now it's late september so at october november december that's like late january so it's unlikely you're going to be conducting offensive operations at that point for a while. So I do think that if Ukraine has the capabilities, the next three, four months would be when they would want to make a big push. Yeah. And we know the Kherson offensive is still ongoing, is, is making progress, uh, albeit slowly. Um, but I think if that operation is to accelerate or if the Ukrainians are to make gains in, in other regions, in the Donbass, let's say, they're going to need more uh, of the kinds of equipment that the West has so far been reluctant to provide to yeah. them, like tanks. And I'm wondering now if Putin's speech is going to be an impetus to step it up or to dial it back. That's that's that, that's the big question now, because the positive scenario I could see is that the offensive in the north continues, right, and, and mm -hmm. moves into Luhansk Oblast. Mm -hmm. um, you can get there was rumors of, a, of, a, of an offensive in Donetsk. And then if you start moving up from the south, you start to, you know, to squeeze that territory that Russia controls. And you could you could you could see serious a, a, a advancements here. Um, yeah, Ukraine has the manpower to do it. They don't have the technical. Capability. Right. 
this point. Right. And that's and they have the morale to do it. Yeah. Um, but, but and their their logistics seem a lot better than the Russians. I mean, they're getting a lot of intelligence sharing from the West, and that's certainly helping matters. But their logistics mm-hmm. are, are are actually quite good. Um, before we move into the second half to discuss the domestic impact of this in Russia, I wanted do you see this as a turning point? Was this week a turning point in the war in one way or the other? Yes, but in which way, you know, will be seen in the in the months to come. Um, I'm still cautiously optimistic that the Ukrainians have the advantage. Uh, you know, we're not fighting the Napoleonic Wars here. Um, having a bunch of untrained conscripts uh, getting sent to the front is not a recipe for military success. Um, I think the morale issues on the Russian side are really, really bad. And the weakest point for for Russia is really, as I guess we're going to talk about in a minute, the domestic side. Uh, One of the things that Putin's been able to do up to this point has been to insulate the bulk of the population from the realities of of what's going on. It was a TV war, basically. Yeah, Yeah, it it, it was a sporting event. Um, And now it's, you know... There's a lot more people who are going to be directly touched by this, uh, and that's hard to uh, to isolate the population from. And I think you know the mobilization you talked about. Russia, Soviet Union has done twice in its modern history: World War One and World War Two. Um, it turned out very differently in those two conflicts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and in World War Two, which I think is the paradigm that. Putin and, and the people around him are, are using, right? It was the Great Patriotic War, and I mean, okay, there was a lot of coercion involved, but you know, morale was generally high. But that was, of course, because Soviet soldiers were fighting on their own territory against a genocidal foe, um, and they really had no choice. They were, if if they surrendered, if they were defeated, they were going to be just wiped out, um, and that made them much more, you know, cohesive, more willing to to fight, whatever they may have thought about Stalin. But now it's Ukraine that's kind of in that position rather than Russia. Right. And if Russian soldiers don't fulfill the mission, you know, they can go home. I mean, Putin may not let them, but they're not going to be, you know, sent to concentration camps. They're not going to be, have their families eliminated. They're not, you know, have all of these things happen to them. So I think in this way, the World War One example is actually the more mm-hmm. analogy, where you have this mass army of conscripts that's fighting for this distant uh, regime of, of somewhat questionable legitimacy that eventually just decides that they've had enough and start deserting en masse. Um, and then, you know, the garrisons in the capital are sort of instrumental in uh, coalescing the the frustration of the population at large, which you know then turns into the 1917 rebellion. That's because people have been using the 1905 Russo-Japanese War as the model yeah. here, and perhaps perhaps World War One is a better better model. Well, that's a great way to segue into our second section. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at the rising domestic dissent inside Russia and what it might mean. 
I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is the one and only Jeff Bankoff, a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. I'd also add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the U.S. Department of Defense. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So more than a thousand people and counting have been arrested for protesting Putin's partial mobilization in cities and towns across Russia. By my last count, it was about 1,300 across 40 cities. Others are fleeing the country in droves with flights selling out and the cost of airline tickets skyrocketing in airports uh, having chaotic scenes. And oh, by the way, the iconic pop star, Ala Pukachova, has come out forcefully against the war in a post on Instagram. But other than that, Putin's announcement this week went over swimmingly. Um, I, I've, been, I've been saying for months that Putin has put himself in a precarious position politically. Um, he's caught between hawks who want a full mobilization, a formal declaration of war, and a total military victory in Ukraine. That's not happening. Um, and on the other hand, those who want to go back to the pre-February 24th status quo and for this all to just go away. That's also not happening. Neither of these things is go are, are going to happen, and Putin is left in a place where he's pleasing exactly nobody. This week seems to confirm my hypothesis about this. Um, his his speech, as I said, seemed to be a, an effort to split the difference. Jeff, how do you view this domestic fallout? Is he really in trouble this time? Because we thought Putin was in trouble a lot in the past, and he wasn't. I mean, it, it's too early to tell. Uh, I do think that, like I said at the beginning, that this decision to, to move to partial mobilization that doesn't look very partial suggests that Putin feels like he has more to fear from the national right. right than he does from a surly population. Um, now, maybe that's right. Um, that's certainly the, the gamble that he's taken. Um, at this particular moment in time, that's probably true. In fact, whether that will still be true in six months is another question, um, because, you know, at this point, as you said, people who want to get out of Russia to get away from this are leaving uh, in droves. I mean, they've been leaving in significant numbers since the war started, um, but that has really accelerated uh, in the last couple of days. You know, 
seen pictures of the line of cars at the, the Finnish right. border or the Mongolian border for that right. matter. Um, the price of airline tickets to Yerevan or to Istanbul has, has gone up multiple fold as, as people are trying to get out. Um, so in terms of the domestic calculation, you know, these people don't particularly matter because they're going to be gone. Um, but the people who are left, um, including the ones who are being sent to the front, but also their families, um, I don't think their views are going to improve over the next six months. Uh, and especially if uh, our predictions for how the course of the war over that amount of time goes are borne out, which is to say that Russia doesn't really gain any additional ground. Um, you know, they may be able to hold the line in some areas by pouring lots of people uh, into it, but at very high cost. If that's actually what ends up happening, then I think you're going to see the, the mood uh, within the country turn increasingly ugly. Um, now, Putin has spent a lot of his time in office uh, building up a Praetorian guard, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. to kind of coup-proof his regime, not only to coup proof it, but to really to protect it from the population of, at, uh, at large. So we could come to a, a reckoning here at some point where we are going to see just how effective that Praetorian Guard, you know, the National Guard that Rosguardia right. that, that built up actually is. I mean, some of these guys have already been sent to Ukraine. I imagine more of them are going to be sent yep. to Ukraine. So that's that's also not a good indicator. Yeah, no, one of the big questions here is, is this population, the surly population, as you put it, is this a sleeping giant? Or is this something that Putin's going to be able to make short work of, as he always has in the past, following the Bolotnaya protests and, 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 and others? I also, there's also something else going on right now domestically that's kind of bubbling below the surface, but it keeps popping up, is these, these businessmen that seem to keep up keep on showing up dead uh yeah. falling out of windows um being shot with their families in their apartments mm -hmm. there's my last count there's 10 of them mm -hmm. um most of them yeah. oil executives and there's different I've, I've heard different takes on this i i saw your your former professor uh tim snyder uh mm -hmm. speaking on on tv the other night where he he was asked his take on this and he said that what he thinks we obviously don't know because we don't have a lot right. of visibility inside here. But there's there's two ways to look at this. Um, and Professor Snyder seemed to be saying that Putin's role has always been the you know the arbiter among the clans of the Kremlin, and mm -hmm. his his power. This seems to suggest that his power is weakening, and yep. that, that 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 everybody's kind of going at it against each other. Mm -hmm. So this is basically the function of clan warfare. That was yeah. that that was Tim Snyder's take. There's another take here that's possible, and that is that Putin is effectively eliminating anybody who is kind of uh, is speaking out against this in any way, shape, or form, even if they're top oil executives. What? How? How do you view these these deaths of the the, the, the you know, up to ten now that we've seen, yeah. including one here in Washington? Yeah, um, it's hard to say because again, we we don't really know, um, but. You know, it it does on some level look like a return to the what in Russian were called razborka, uh, yeah, uh, which means sort of like the settling of scores. Settling of scores, yeah. Uh, in the 1990s, between you know various criminal groups, um, one of the things that Putin has always prided himself on was uh, reasserting the state's um, monopoly on the legitimate use of force within the country. So the kind of anarchy that existed in that period uh, was no right. longer. And he did it by basically absorbing a lot of this mafia structure in, into the state. 
um, if his hold is weakening, if the attention of the power ministries and everyone else is now focused outward, um, clearly the economic pie is getting smaller as a result of sanctions. So there's certainly a case to be made that we are seeing a return to these kind of criminal rozborka of the 1990s. Um, but again, we don't know. Um, yeah. This is a regime that certainly has a history of uh, doing away with its opponents, both uh, at home and abroad, sometimes in rather uh, Baroque fashion. Um, so it certainly would not be out of uh, keeping with the way that uh, the regime has acted in the past uh, to suggest that they were now sort of going after um, people they wanted to get rid of. The question though is, you know, why these particular people? Yeah, yeah. Some of them are open critics, like the guy who was killed here in Washington, uh, Rappaport. Others though, you know, not really, or that's not, there are other much more visible critics uh, who have not been targeted, at least not yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, in, in some ways it, it's to put it up to that seems a little strange, which doesn't make it impossible. Yeah. I mean, depending on which of these two, and I, I don't see any other possibility. It's either a return to Rasborka, Putin's not able to mediate between the clans of the Kremlin anymore. That's one possibility. That means he's in trouble. Yeah. That means he's in more trouble than we think. If it's that, if, if Professor Snyder is correct, um, if Tim Snyder is correct, then that means Putin's in trouble. If it's the latter, if this is just the ruthless elimination of, 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 uh, you know, political enemies real and imagined, then that doesn't, that suggests he's not in trouble, that he still kind of has control of the situation. And again, you're, yeah. you're, go ahead. I was going to say that assumes that he's the one who's ordering these hits. Right. Um, now it's possible that there are other people, other interests in the security services. It's possible that both of these explanations that we were discussing are true at the same time. Um, that, you know, it could be people in the security services who are settling their own scores, you know, independently of, of any orders from the top, right? We don't know that there's a, a clear chain of command for this, even if it is right. really state structures that are doing it. Yeah, no, we, again, there is so much we don't know. And this is one of the most frustrating things about this time as a Russia watcher. We, on one hand, we've never had it so good because everybody cares about what we do. Um, and on another hand, we've never had it so bad because we got so spoiled in the 90s and 2000s where we had a serious visibility into the inner workings uh, of the Kremlin that we don't have now. People, those that know don't talk and those that talk don't know is, is a good rule of thumb right now. I, I could not, um, in good conscience, not talk about Ala Pugachova because I actually think this is rather significant. I mean, Ala Pugacheva, of course, the Russian pop diva, um, mm -hmm. superstar um, throughout the the, 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 the the 70s up until now. She's in her 70s now. I mean, Ala Pugacheva, you know, often referred to as the, the Russian Madonna. Um, I recall one of the first jokes I heard of in when I first went to the Soviet Union is who, who was Leonid Brezhnev? And the answer was a minor political figure in the era of Ala Pugacheva. So that gives you an idea of how much yeah. uh, cash she has um, in Long Russian Internet. society. Yeah. I mean, in people that like uh, follow Ala Pugacheva are, are largely over, you know, in their 50s. But she's a cultural mm -hmm. icon and she came yeah. out absolutely forcefully against mm -hmm. the war. Do you I mean, how do you is this how do you view this? Is this significant? Because I I. I tend to think that somebody like Ala Pokachova can move a lot of minds. Yeah. Um, somebody, I think it was uh, uh, Professor uh, Sergei Radchenko on, on Twitter talked about the Pugachova rebellion. Uh -huh. uh, 
<laughs> for those of you who studied Russian history, you'll, you'll get the reference. But um, you know, she's not a she's not a public figure. Uh, I mean, she's a public figure. She's not a political figure. Um, so I don't know. I think her criticism is probably giving voice to something that a lot of other people who don't have her stature are feeling. Um, I'm not sure she's going to change a lot of minds. Uh, she may give people who uh, have already been having their doubts uh, a little more uh, freedom to express them, yeah. or more willingness to express them publicly. Yeah, and for those that don't know, the Pugacheva Rebellion was in 1773 to 1775, a popular revolt uh, during the time of Catherine the Great, just to get that historical footnote, not to be confused with Ala Pugacheva, the 20th and 20th and 21st century pop star. No, I just see it as one of, just yet another one of these signs. I mean, remember, I mean, that's, you know, Lyndon Johnson famously said, if I've lost Walter Cron Cronkite, I've lost America. Yeah. I don't know if Putin's lost Ala Pugacheva, has he lost Russia? I'm not sure about that, but but I, I it's just... Another one of these signs, and again, this my thinking here is that this there's there's the the, the popular the restive population is a sleeping giant, um, and Absolutely. and if 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 you do if they do conduct this mobilization uh, and that and that the you know everybody knows somebody who's been sent off to war that 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 is going to have um, effects. Um, not to mention that Russia's suffering a brain drain right now. That probably yeah. accounts for Putin. Uh, giving exemptions to these white collar workers and IT workers and bankers and so on and so forth because there's a fear of losing their best and their brightest because there's this is another piece of this is that I mean I don't know how many Russians have left how many will left will mm -hmm. leave what kind of refugee infl influx or asylum seeker influx Europe is going to have to prepare for at some point Russians can't directly fly to Europe but there are ways they can get there uh, otherwise I mean how did this is something uh, also to take into consideration going forward no. Yeah, uh, I think one of Putin's big failings as a leader has been his belief that public opinion is infinitely malleable mm -hmm. uh, and that the state ultimately decides and that, you know, the public is this sort of passive entity to be acted upon, whether that's by, you know, the political technologists in the Kremlin uh, whether that's by, you know, the Western secret services and, you know, subversive organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy or, or whatever it is. But the kind of consistent refusal to give agency to ordinary people has led Putin and by proxy Russia to completely misunderstand political and social dynamics in other countries. Um, why was Russia so caught off guard by the Euromaidan? Um, because they didn't expect that ordinary Ukrainians would react the way they did to the announcement that Yanukovych made about backing away from the from the trade agreement with the EU. Right? It just paid no attention to how the public was was thinking about this and figured that you know if they could convince Yanukovych he would take care of the public, and clearly it turned out the other way. The public took care of him. Right. Um, and I think that there's a similar myopia uh, at work now. Uh, that's internally focused. Uh, I think there's an assumption that people may be unhappy, but that you know you can use the tools of political technology, you can use television, you can use radio, the internet, whatever it is, 
um, to bring people around to uh, your point of view. And that just doesn't work. It, it didn't work in earlier eras. Uh, you know, we were talking about 1905 and 1917. Um, and I don't think it, it works today. And the fact that uh, the Kremlin seems to believe that, you know, it can get away with this and, and not pay internal consequences, I think is, is a worrying sign. And I, I think it suggests that they've really kind of lost the thread and have sort of lost touch with, with what's going on in yeah. the country. Yeah, the way I've always seen this, just to wrap us up here, is that, I mean, just street protests and just public restiveness is not going to be enough to bring down no. this regime. And just restiveness within the elite yeah. is not going to be enough. But when those two things are happening simultaneously, mm-hmm. that's when a regime is going to be in trouble, right? Yeah. And we're beginning, we're seeing the restiveness in the street, how sustainable it is, we don't know. We mm-hmm. seem to be seeing restiveness in the elite um, mm-hmm. at this time. And if those two things are ever reach a degree of intensity simultaneously, yeah. um, then that's when that's when this regime is going to be in serious trouble um we're bumping up against the end i know you got another meeting to go to so i'm I'm mindful of your time any last thoughts before we wrap it up for the week well just that again i I think in addition to the elements you were talking about there's the big question of what are the bodyguards going to do what are the people who at the end of the day are charged with keeping the regime in power going to do if they have to face down a surly angry public and that was the final turning point during the Euromaidan, right? When Yanukovych's security guys decided that they weren't going to be willing to shoot or die for him. Right. Um, And that's, you know, when he leaves the country. Um, I don't think we know uh, in the Russian context how uh, people would react in that situation. They haven't been called upon to do it. Um, But that's the, the big unknown here. But I think you're right that the combination of elite dissatisfaction coupled with public discontent, if we start seeing lots of, of ordinary Russians coming back uh, in body bags, is going to be really, really explosive. Yeah, no, and it's it bears mentioning when Putin created the, the National Guard, the Rosgvardia, it was of two functions, basically, to be used against the population in the event of a popular uprising, but also to send a message to the elite. Remember, Putin mm-hmm. put the Rosgvardia under the command of his very loyal, longtime First bodyguard, thing. Viktor Zolotov, um, and that was a clear signal. He was creating a Praetorian Guard. Um, but you're right, at the end of the day, those people in the Guard are going to have to make a decision about whether or not to, to, uh, to, to lay their lives down for Putin or not. And that's, that's, uh, we're not there yet. We're not even close yet, but this is something we may be having to think about in the future. Um, Praetorian guards made and unmade a lot of emperors in ancient Rome. Yes, exactly. Um, On that note, we will wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood has been Jeff Mankoff. 
a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University's Institute for National Strategic Studies and author of the recently published book, Empires of Eurasia, How Imperial Legacies Shape International Security. It's a great book. I got my copy. You should get yours, too. I'd also uh, should add that Jeff's views are his own and do not necessarily reflect those of the NDU or the Department of Defense. Thanks, Jeff, for an enlightening discussion, as always. Yeah, no, thank you, and have a good weekend. You too. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes, and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn if you do please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. You can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 